When the sun beats down Burns the tar up on the roof And your shoes get so hot You wish your tired feet were fireproof Under the boardwalk Down by the sea On the blanket with my
Time for another podcast episode, folks. What do you think about that? That song, Under the Boardwalk. Under the Boardwalk is a funny song. I was hesitant to record it for this episode because of its easy listening nature. And I don't know if I feel that way simply because of this anecdote, but I'll tell you a funny story about when I was in driver's ed. This is in Western Massachusetts, and the driver's ed instructor, Mr. King, had been teaching driver's ed at my high school for probably 30 years. He had educated or miseducated generations of young drivers and had a child of his own, a grown son, who lived in Colorado and was in a doo-wop acapella band called the Cool Shoes. I don't I don't know how they spelled shoes, but they probably spelled it with a Z. Yeah, probably. And one day I was um, on one of my driving practice times with Mr. King and my friend Gabe in the back seat. And Mr. King had a tape of the cool shoes that he was playing in the car. And he was like trying to show me the liner notes to the tape while I was making a busy left turn onto Route 9. And, you know, just it was it was kind of funny, but he really he really gets excited about the cool shoes. And when the song Under the Boardwalk came on, done in a reggae version, it was done kind of straight at first. And then after a particular chorus, one singer goes, Yeah, man, we be jamming. And then they go into a nice white acapella reggae thing. And Mr. King very earnestly said to me during the song, you know, I think if they ever have a hit, this is going to be the one. And <laughs> I, I, uh, I kept a straight face, but man, I caught Gabe's uh, eyes in the rearview mirror and he was dying in the back seat. Um, so... Good old Mr. King, I wonder who he is. The uh, Aside from that anecdote, the reason I play the song for you is because my first gig of the month of May was a summer-themed thing. There's a company, advertising company, called Gray Advertising that has an occasional, maybe annual or biannual meeting at Town Hall in New York City. And it's not exactly a corporate meeting, it's not exactly a corporate retreat, and it's not exactly a party, but it's sort of all three of those things. It's hosted by two of the higher-ups from the company, not the CEO, but I think the president and also the president of North America, the North American division of the company, that is. And they're pretty funny guys and they like to let everybody get to know them a little bit by hosting this event and they talk about the company and they show works in you know important things that they did over the past year or stuff that's coming up and there are prize giveaways and general fun type of stuff and 
they had a live band for this year's event. Sort of Paul Schaefer in the CBS Orchestra style. We were supposed to play a few songs. We played a set at the very beginning of the day, which was like 9.30 in the morning. And uh, we played for maybe 20 minutes then. And periodically throughout the show, we'd have little sound cues or we would play while somebody was walking out to make a speech or whatever. Pretty hilarious gig. And I was playing bass and tuba. Kyle Forrester of Kyle's Corner of Escape from Society fame. Uh, Kyle sort of put together the regular Kyle's Corner karaoke band for this. And the lead singer was woman Yvonne. She was really good. She's German and she's one of the coaches on the German version of the TV show, The Voice. How about that for your resume? Anyways, Under the Boardwalk is one of the songs that we played. It's actually kind of a nice song. And the gig was a total success. They paid us well. Hopefully they'll also have us come play on their rooftop deck this summer, which they threatened to do, which as long as that also pays well, I think would be really fun down on the flat iron. So, 1st of May, 9.30 a.m. on stage. Did not waste any time getting the gigs fired up. May 2014. Indeed, that night I played back at Bar Chord down in Ditmas Park, which you all are familiar with by now, with yet another band, this band Super Hi-Fi, which is sort of a dub reggae band fronted by two trombone players. And I had not played with the band before, but it is indeed my friend Ezra Gale from Beowulf, who runs the band, writes the music. And the two trombone players who usually do it are both old Oberlin Jazz Trombone Studio pals, colleagues of mine, Alex Asher and Ryan Snow. But they were both busy on this particular night, and Rick Parker has actually been doing the trombone quite a bit in this band. So it was me and Rick, and I learned the music, and you're hearing one of the records here. Pretty fun stuff to play. Nice to play with another trombone player. Rick brings a bunch of pedals for his trombone, so his trombone is nice and affected, but mine was just straight up, straight up bone, straight up jamming. gloss over Saturday night, May 3rd. Mitra Sumara played at Barbez, but we were playing there every Saturday night throughout the month, so I'll get back to that a little bit later on. The following day, Sunday, May 4th, an old friend of mine, Lamia Streffi, had 
called and asked me to participate in his large ensemble improvisatory, directed improvisation type thing at the club New Blue. New Blue is really close to the stone, but it's kind of a hole in the wall. It's basically an unmarked door. I'd never been there or had occasion to hang out there. And I know Lamy through Steve Wood, the bass player. And when Steve finished Oberlin, he wound up studying in Austria. He lived in Graz for a few years and became good friends with Lamy, a drummer there. They had a band together and they wound up moving to New York at the same time and living together for a little while. It was funny, my, um, around the time they moved, I, was, I remember playing with Adam Kane, the guitarist, and describing Steve and Lamy to him. And he was surprised when he met them and they weren't a couple. He had, just in the way I told him the story, he had sort of assumed that Steve and Lamy had this jazz romance and were moving together across the ocean to New York and he found that very romantic and sweet. Indeed, you do not see very many same-sex musician couples in the jazz world, so that would have turned a few heads. Was not actually true. Steve and Lamy were not and have never been a couple romantically involved with each other. But they did move here together, and we played together a little bit around that time. And I see Steve a lot now, but I hardly ever see Lamy. And he called me up, asked me to do this thing. Yeah, there's no money in it, but, you know, it's a lot of beautiful players and blah, blah, blah. And I wound up knowing some of the players who were involved and not knowing most of them and not really getting to know most of them. I actually did not have a very good time on this gig it was conceived uh, as an hour-long thing where every minute is prescribed. And it's so the 60 minutes, and it was actually 61 minutes, are all written out across like three sheets of paper, which are hard to read. There weren't enough music stands to go around, but there's also like no light in New Blue. So... It was really easy to get buried in the page or to just start disregarding the page altogether. And there were certain musicians who were definitely either lost or disregarding the page, which meant we weren't really doing what we were supposed to be doing. And in some ways that can be beautiful, but the attitude that I had that night was that it was just lame it was hard to hear anybody. It was hard to make any sense. There was this thing, like something was feeding back in the house sound system for five or six minutes at the beginning. And it was really loud and it was really obvious that it wasn't a part of the music. It wasn't a drone that somebody was doing. It was just feedback and no one corrected it for yeah five or six minutes. And it was just like, all right, this is gonna be a shit show. I happened to have the tuba with me uh, in addition to my trombone because I was coming from a rehearsal with the tuba. And so the silver lining of the gig was that I got to 
play the tuba in a, f not a freely improvised setting, but more or less a freely improvised setting, which I don't think I've done before. Um, and every little bit of experience helps, uh, even if it's something, you know, if, if it's a kind of music that I'm familiar with and do on the trombone, uh, have lots of experience with, but it doesn't immediately translate to a new instrument. You know, there are certain vocabulary techniques and things that you have to develop on each instrument to be able to fit into a new situation. So, yeah, did not have a blast at New Blue and uh, indeed did not make an effort to join the band again when they did it a few weeks later. Uh, but got to play the tuba a little bit, even though it meant lugging the tuba out to Avenue C, which is not fun. So I mentioned the reason I had the tuba with me that day was because I had been rehearsing something. That thing was a video shoot on Wednesday afternoon with a band called Sylvan Esso, which is a duo. I hesitate to call them synth pop, but they are, you know, they're a synthy rock pop vocal kind of band not known for acoustic performances and for the music blog Noisy this shoot was going to be the two of them with a brass quartet quintet uh, and an extra drummer doing an acoustic rooftop performance my friend Adam Schatz put the band together and did the arrangement asked me to play tuba which I was happy to do. Unfortunately, the song is in the key of B, and I think anyone would have a hell of a time, but I, especially as still somewhat of a novice on the tuba, I have a hell of a time playing the note B on my tuba. It's just not a note that's really there. It's really hard to get that note in tune, but you can kind of honk away, and it the effect of a B comes across which is sort of what I did. And it turned out that the shoot was on my friend Matt Marlin's old rooftop. He used to live on the corner of North 7th and Bedford above the uh, Oasis falafel place. And that's where this shoot was. So Matt's the drummer and starring. Our first, very first starring CDs, which were handmade, spray-painted, self-produced we we produced those we did the spray painting up on that roof coming full circle and a great moment happened when we were rehearsing and somehow the restaurant hotel chain Howard Johnson's came up and the singer from Sylvanesso started singing the NRBQ song Howard Johnson's got his hojo working 
So I joined her and sang, you know, we sang a verse and acted all casual. And suddenly I, I was doubting whether that song is an NRBQ song at all. Maybe it's the Howard Johnson theme song and NRBQ just covered it and I just know it as an NRBQ song. Because, like, why would, why would a young person in a popular band be singing NRBQ? NRBQ is this whole joke, as I'm sure I've mentioned, uh, in Starring, that it's like the lame, bad dad jam music that I like. Which I reject that categorization, but it picked up that uh, taint at some point in the starring tour bus. And uh, so I never think that young people are going to like NRBQ. And so we looked at each other sort of casually and then realized that we had just been singing an NRBQ song together and hugged each other. And it made me very happy. I don't think that um, shoot has been posted yet, but look for that uh, because I think it went well. It's probably going to be pretty fun to listen to. It was kind of windy, so maybe the sound is never going to be adequate. We'll see. That was an afternoon shoot and Tin Pan hit in the park that morning, which I was going to be doing trombone and then the bass player had to cancel and so I just filled in for the bass player with the tuba. So I had a, a two tuba gig day. How about that? We did pretty well in the park uh, that day, if I recall. It was kind of a hot, sunny day. A lot of people in the park, very hot up on the roof. Glad we had our sunscreen. Alright, so I had this wedding gig that I was the point man for. I often play weddings, but I'm not usually the guy in charge. And the way this one came about was when I was playing back in March at a Trinity Church function, someone there, it was actually one of the reverends of the church, approached me because her sister was going to be getting married at the church and she, she hadn't hired a band yet and was going to need music for the reception. At that function, I was playing like jazz trio stuff. And what the reverend told me is that she didn't know what kind of music they were going to want, but they liked this band Time for Three. So I checked out Time for Three. They're kind of like a pop classical crossover band two violins and double bass or something. So they'll do arrangements of popular songs and play fun, virtuosic stuff 
original music, I think. Kind of a combination of both. They're like, they're good showmen. They're fun. They're bluegrassy a little bit. Something about it reminded me of Bella Fleck and the Flecktones, which is a band that I never listened to anymore, but I really loved when I was in high school. So I checked out Time for Three, and I was like, eh, well, it's not really my thing. But anyways, I wrote to the bride-to-be and gave her a couple of options. I said, yeah, I work with a like violin, bass, guitar, trombone kind of trio thing. You might like that. I play with this banjo player sometimes. You might like that. And over the course of the correspondence, it was clear that the gig was going to be kind of out of my wheelhouse. They were like, no, trombone's not really what we want. You should play guitar. We want to feature strings. And we want some classical music and some, like, bluegrassy stuff. Well, I never play, like, capital C classical music unless I'm just screwing around. And, you know, I can play the guitar, but I'm not a bluegrass guitar player. But I wanted the gig because it was going to pay decent money. And I've played enough weddings to know what people enjoy and how to help people have fun. So it's not like I didn't have confidence in myself. Anyways, we corresponded a little bit. I sent them a pretty broad list of potential repertoire that had like some Gillian Welch on it, some Otis Redding and Sam Cooke, some Billie Holiday. I said we'd do some Vivaldi and Bach. And they were totally into it. They were like, yeah, uh, look forward to hearing the Otis Redding like gonna be great and I got a trio together with Kaylee Monaghan Ward who plays violin and mandolin we play together in skeletons and Steve Wood who I often play with in Tin Pan and know from college on bass and Steve and Kaylee both have really excellent technique and can play in different styles actually Kaylee and I both grew up in western Massachusetts and we went to jazz camp at UMass together, even though we didn't know each other at the time. I only figured that out later, uh, after we met here in New York. Anyways, we had a rehearsal. I printed out some scores from like a free public domain classical music archive. Old trio sonatas, some Mozart, some um, Bach and Vivaldi, and the one that worked really, really well was some guy named William Boyce, a composer from the 18th century. His trio sonatas were were really fun to play, but it sounded weird. I was playing the trombone on the middle line, Kaylee playing violin on the top line, Steve playing bass on the bottom line. Violin, trombone, and bass is not really a Baroque music classic instrumentation. It doesn't really exist at all. So we did our best, and when the gig came around, we played that stuff during the dinner hour there was one little toddler like a one-year-old who loved it everybody else was kind of like oh yeah that's nice but i feel like they would have responded that way to a regular string trio also and then we broke out the like beatles and doc watson and sam cook stuff and people 
danced and had a great time and everyone loved it and we were better at playing that stuff than we were playing the jazz standards but there's you know some similarity in approach because we were just playing the melody and taking solos and stuff and uh and i had switched to guitar for those things and i don't know why the violin stopped being a popular jazz instrument it sounds so good playing jazz and soul and r&b and all that stuff i understand that maybe there were volume concerns it's not a loud instrument maybe it was difficult to amplify it in the early days and it got left behind because it was a part of jazz in the say the the swing era like Django Reinhardt hot hot club of France hot jazz usually had a violin nearby if not in the band and then it fell away but like Kaylee's a great player and so are a lot of other people and it just it sounds so good doing it and uh, I don't know why it's not more commonly found good instrument that violin and fun gig the wedding I took I was able I was you know told I could take flowers home because there were a lot of extra flowers so like 10 o'clock Saturday night I'm riding the train home with all these flowers and man if you want to make some friends you want to make people happy carry around flowers and hand them out on the subway on a Saturday night I thought making friends was easy when I was carrying the tuba around I tell you you carry flowers around and give them out to people you're you're gonna make some people smile make you the envy of the rest of the girls oh Creole Belle I love you well my darling baby my Creole Belle pick me one more there son So I got to get into the universe as a small hat with you now. I have a friend named Cesar Alvarez, who I went to Oberlin with. He introduced me to Kyle, as a matter of fact, uh, because they went to high school together. But anyways, uh, even though I don't see Cesar very often, I, I do see people all the time who are still, or who are also connected to Cesar. And when he called to tell me about a new project that he was putting together, I was pretty interested. There was something he, a show that he wrote, a theater show called Futurity a few years ago. I did a very early reading of, reading and a couple of performances. Uh, and I can't remember why I didn't continue on doing that, but that show eventually sort of hit the same circuit that Beowulf and some of Cindy Hopkins shows have been on, The Walker and Minneapolis, the um, ART in Cambridge, 
that kind of thing. The show has done very well, which is cool. Cesar wrote the script and the music for that. I think he collaborated maybe a little bit on both. But anyways, he's written some music for other theater things and done a singer-songwriter thing more generally for the last 10 years, even though when I first met him, he was also a jazz major in college. So he turned his back on jazz a little bit to embrace the singer-songwriter thing, but he still plays the saxophone, and jazz is still a part of his brain. So the new thing, which is called The Universe is a Small Hat, is a participatory sci-fi theater experience. It takes place 100 years in the future, and we're all on a spaceship. The people in the cast and in the band are artificially intelligent, sentient robot beings. And the humans on the ship are the audience. So the audience is participating in the action. They're not sitting around and watching a show. They're actually doing the show, not in a scripted way, but they're free to interact with each other and with the AIs and uh, they can listen to the music, they can walk around, they can do whatever they are given little tasks to complete, etc. And Cesar wanted the music for the show to be an imaginary folk music or an imaginary popular music style from the future, something we haven't heard, something very not genre specific to the present day. So how do you do that? It's not something you can really do within the space of half a dozen band rehearsals and uh, and that sort of thing. But, you know, there's a composer, Laszlo Hortabagi, a... Uh, probably not saying his name right, but he's a Hungarian composer. He does stuff like this where he'll he'll invent a planet and then make a an album of the folk music from that planet, stuff like that. Cesar sort of had that in mind. So the uh, songs borrow from jazz and from African music and from American folk music and from cabaret music and from... Uh, electronic music and from hip hop and from um, what am I thinking reggaeton and blah 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 so it's a bit of a pastiche and it was it was fun to put these things together and participate in both the music rehearsals and the acting rehearsals because there's a lot of high concept going on here and we want to like really create something the goal for this month was not to really put the complete show together, but to put all the songs together because we had two music performances, which were at Joe's Pub, and put enough of the show together to be able to do something. And we had, in essence, a play test at the Silent Barn. So the two shows at Joe's Pub went off well, there's a lot of there's a lot of music in this show, at least an hour's worth, I'd say. And we just played through it all. There are different people who sing different songs. I was playing trombone and a little bit of keyboard, and we got some good recording of 
the show. So that's what you're hearing. You're actually hearing us playing at Joe's Pub. Give you some idea what was going down. I belong to the Church of Future Magic. I belong to the Church of Future Magic. of the universe time in fact does not pass it exists as a block and a week after that was the show at the silent barn i'd say of the 70 i think there were 75 invitation reservation slots and they all got filled up and maybe most of those people showed up so we had a, a good sized crowd that came around 7.30 or something, and by 8 o'clock, we were on the ship, taken off. There were songs scattered throughout the voyage. So audience members, which is to say the humans, were assigned their different tasks and met with each other and interacted with each other and their AIs. And some of the some of the audience members who I knew personally were conversing with me um, out of game. You know, they just kind of wanted to talk and hang out, which is not the idea. The idea is to stay in game to really everybody is playing a character. There's a lot, a lot of this show is theoretically rooted in live action role playing. So it's kind of a role playing thing and not everybody is necessarily understanding that and it's also everything's constantly being interrupted by songs and people listen to some of the songs and just kind of talked through some of the other songs and I couldn't tell what made them choose to do one or the other all the songs have a certain amount of information that would advance the not advance the plot but I guess enhance the understanding of what's happening. So for people to completely ignore the songs, they're going to miss one opportunity for enriching the experience. But on the other hand, I think Cesar writes stuff the way the way his songs are are written are often pretty wordy and my brain often does not um comprehend his sentence structure uh, sentence composition very well which is kind of true for me with a lot of vocal music I'm one of those people who just can hear words but not really put them together when I'm listening to music so anyways this happened the other night I don't know what experience people had. From our end, we played the songs. Actually, when we did it at the Silent Barn, we didn't even have the bass player and the guitarist who had done the shows at Joe's Pub. So I was playing bass exclusively and Cesar was playing piano. Well, no, Cesar was mostly able to do what he had done at Joe's Pub, but he had to learn some extra parts on the keyboard. and. 
blah, blah, blah. But it was at the silent barn where my bass amp lives. And I got to use my bass amp for the first time in like a year because it just lives there and I never really need it, but it was nice to play through it. My favorite moment of the show was the song where the character who's not exactly a cult leader, but we'll refer to him that way for uh, shorthand purposes here. He asks the audience to uh, grab someone or grab a few people and slow dance to this one particular song that he sings. And people did that. And I imagine most of them were not dancing with people that they knew personally before coming, before arriving at this theater presentation. Probably a lot of them were, but there was also probably slow dancing going on between anonymous strangers who were in the midst of a game. And that was cool. And it was also cool to, uh, I don't know, feel like I was playing at a high school dance, which is not something that, uh, it's not an opportunity that I've ever had in my life. It's kind of throwback feeling there. That was cool. So chronologically, um, out of sequence here, but somewhere in the middle of all of the universes, the small hat stuff, I had an early morning mommy and me class gig. And this was, again, Trinity Church related. And there's a good postscript to this now. So I'm glad a couple weeks have elapsed and I can tell the story from this perspective. This mommy and me class was the brainchild of someone who I will not name, who is our kind of initial contact at Trinity Church. And she's got all kinds of ideas and programs that she wants to have. And I've always liked working with her, but she's also completely scatterbrained, or if not scatterbrained, just in over her head with all the work that she's trying to do there. So she wanted to do this class. She emailed me, Brian, and Ezra, the musicians that she knows, and says, hey, can someone accompany the teacher on piano for mommy and me baby music class kind of thing? Brian is a piano player, so he jumped on it. And um, it's like a $250 gig for an hour-long class on Wednesday mornings, and there was a series of them. And they were being taught by a woman who has some experience doing this kind of thing and is a singer-songwriter herself. And the, uh, the idea that the organizer had, she said, all right, we're gonna, gonna have this class. I'm really excited about it. It's gonna go really well. I'm really gonna promote it. 
And the way I'm going to promote it is to not advertise. Just going to let it be word of mouth and it's going to do really great. It's a good promo strategy. So for the first few weeks, no one came. Not a single person showed up and Brian and, and the teacher just sat there drinking coffee and getting paid. So then it was like, okay, we've got a new marketing strategy, which is that we're going to advertise. And uh, I think it's really going to be great, but we're not going to start doing it for another couple weeks. So you guys can just stay home next week, but you'll still get paid. Brian was like, sweet. And uh, then, of course, children showed up that week when there were no teachers. So in fits and starts, the class got off the ground, and there was this particular week that Brian was out of town and asked me to sub for him, which I was happy to do. And the class was fun. I, in addition to playing piano and guitar on just like, you know, Frere Jaca kind of recognizable songs and some other ones that were fun that I didn't know but, but learned on the spot. Um, I brought the trombone, so we had a little like dance around the room, listen to the trombone time. The babies were all one year old or younger, and they were cute and well behaved and everything. Um, but I was I was thinking that like this lady is gonna she's gonna lose her job. She's doing this cool stuff, but like she's not in control and. And so sure enough, the organizer lady I heard the other day is in the process of not working for Trinity Church anymore. So I would be sad if that was the last gig I ever had there because there have been some fun ones. And like I said, uh, I've indicated before, you know, they usually pay. They pay better than most of the other gigs that I get, you know. I, in fact, almost... I thought I almost had my first ever paid sick day for that class because the organizer lady wrote to us the day before and was like, guys, I'm really sick. I'm leaving the office right now. I'm not going to come in tomorrow. And I was thinking because Brian had had these classes canceled that he still got paid for, I was like, oh, sweet. But then she had someone open up the doors for us and we did it anyways in, in her absence. I. I'm pretty sure I've never gotten paid to not show up to work. Some people can do that. A lot of people can do that. The concept of a sick day doesn't apply to the freelance musician, sadly. Because I had been busy for a couple of Saturdays in a row, I missed two of the Mitra Sumara gigs at Barbez, but I made, there were five Saturdays in the month. I made the fourth one and the fifth one. And the, uh, the fourth Saturday of the month was the most fun because I was actually good friends with the people who were in the band following us that night, the band Bombay Ricky. 
And that's Kamala Sankaram singing in that band who I've done some Anthony Braxton stuff with. And she was in the peripherals with me and Michael Evans from Mitra Sumara. So, hey, everybody's friends. What they do is they were formed, I think, explicitly as an Ema Sumac cover band. And they did a couple of my favorite Ema Sumac songs during their set. So I'm going to play one of those as a tribute to spring of 2004, my final semester in college, when we used to have big dance parties at Clara's house that would always end with um, the dancing to this Ema Sumac record, Mambo. And so whenever I listen to that music, it's still firmly imprinted on a very fun couple of months of my life, so the music's great. Let's share that now. So now I want to touch on the Frankie 100 celebration. There was a Lindy Hop dancer back in the swing era named Frankie Manning, and this is his centennial centennial year. He was born in 1914, just like my grandfather, Phil Brown. And 
popularized, helped invent some of the moves from the Lindy Hop, fought in World War II, worked for the post office, spent many years, I think, away from dancing, and then during the swing revival of the 90s and aughts, he was teaching and mentoring dancers and being this like wonderful living link to the past. I never met the guy, but some people I work with did meet him and he was wonderful and he died around the time of his 95th birthday and by that time they were already having these big birthday party swing dance events in his honor and uh, Frankie 100 was a big swing dance an international swing dance sensation we had dancers from 47 countries converging on New York City for the long Memorial Day weekend and I participated in two of the many events. One was a dance at Terminal 5, which is a rather large, spacious location with a large dance floor and then a few balconies. So a good spot for people to, a good spot to have a dance like this because people can stand around and watch the band, but there's also lots of room for them to dance. And it was a very long gig. It went from you know, 9.30 till 4 in the morning or something. So nobody's going to dance all that time, but there's plenty of time, plenty of place to stand around. And they gave out 2,500 slices of pie and had a balloon drop at midnight celebrating the birthday. And it was a fun event. Gordon Webster was leading the band that night. And I've played with Gordon a little bit, started playing with him last year. The connection was through... Jesse Selengut of Tin Pan, who works in Gordon's band a lot. But there's also a connection through some other friends of mine who wound up being on the gig, so it was it was a good hang, and I, I kind of got to be the wild card of the evening. I played tuba on a couple of songs with the like big band, sort of mini big band that played a couple of sets. And then I played trombone and a little bit of tuba with the septet, that played a couple of sets and uh, I just got to hang out and watch people dance and have a good time. When it was time for my big tuba feature, not so much a feature, but there was one song where everybody was taking these extended solos and Gordon asked me to do a tuba solo. I don't have much experience amplifying the tuba, miking the tuba, and I've been told you can just drop a mic down in the bell and it works great. So I walked up to the front of the stage, picked up one of the vocal microphones, stand and all, dumped it right into the tuba, and it started feeding back immediately, which was pretty funny. How did I know that was going to happen? I didn't know. And Rob, the bass player, looked over at the monitor engineer on the side of the stage who was he was just asleep so he didn't really kill the feedback we got it under control i took a little tuba solo it was pretty fun and backstage i got conscripted to do something the following day now my plan for the following day, which was Memorial Day, was to chill out. All of this stuff I'd been talking about, all of all the playing I'd done 
this month, in addition to having worked a bunch of um, like event staffing type of jobs, has left me a little bit worn down. So playing till four in the morning was going to be like, great, celebrate, go home, it's Memorial Day, weather's going to be nice, get a bunch of sleep, pick up the apartment or grill or hang out with friends, do whatever. But then this gig came along because someone backstage said, oh, there's another Frankie event tomorrow that's dedicating this plaque up at the old Savoy Ballroom site on um, Lenox Avenue up in Harlem and then a little parade. You know, we need a tuba player and it's 50 bucks if you just come, uh, you know, this short thing and it's at noon. So I thought, well, why not? Uh, it doesn't sound like it's going to be great, but make a little bit of money. It's also going to get me out of bed so I don't sleep until 2 or 3 in the afternoon. Um, I'll be home by 2 or 3 and, you know, at the latest, you know, I'll probably be home at 1. Like, great. I agreed to do it. Got home, went to bed sometime after 6, got up around 10, dragged myself up to Harlem with the tuba. Turned out to be the hottest day of the year so far. And this gig was a mess, it was a total mess. And uh, there, wasn't, there wasn't really a band there. There definitely wasn't anybody who was an actual drummer, for instance. And there was like this teenager with a guitar, but you can't hear an acoustic guitar in a parade. And there were a couple of good trombone players actually and then like a clarinet and a trumpet player who I, I couldn't tell uh, if he was playing a lot of the time. We did a couple of songs, we played Stompin' at the Savoy there at the site of the Savoy during this little dedication ceremony, but it slowed down a ton because there was no real drummer and like, uh, it didn't sound that good, but it's like, whatever, okay, so now there's gonna be this little parade and then the parade was like an hour long and i would i would prefer to tell you that it was more of a mob than a parade because we weren't marching in time i had no idea where we were going where we were going to end up and my tuba is a tuba it's not a sousaphone which is made for marching it's a it's a tuba i mean the sousaphone was invented because the tuba is so inadequate as a marching instrument. It's difficult to hold, it's very heavy. It's hard to play standing up. Walking with it doesn't add too much difficulty than just standing up, but when there are dozens of people knocking into you from all directions all the time, and separating you from the rest of the band so you can't hear what other people are doing and it's 90 degrees out and you don't know where you're going and you're in the sun and dehydrated and hungover from the night before i mean it was miserable i was so miserable and it was but that's the thing being miserable was counterbalanced by feeling good about playing wonderful jazz music and celebrating the life of this wonderful guy and there were a couple of VIPs there who were like 
you know, throwback old Lindy Hoppers. So it was cool to see them having a good time. But man, I was so unhappy with uh, the organizers for not protecting the band during the parade. So we were all getting knocked into and it was kind of a dangerous situation and not telling us what was going on and not putting together a real band in the first place. So I took my 50 bucks and went home and took a nap. And when I tried to practice the trombone later that evening, like I could barely pick it up. I mean, my arms were hurting. Probably good for me in the long run, just from the terms, you know, if if nothing else from a live and learn standpoint. Oh, but something funny happened, which was the trombonist uh, who had been on the gig the night before also and seemed like a nice guy and most everyone knew him, but I didn't know him before. And he's really good at the trombone. He was kind of looking at me sideways the whole time. Not in an unfriendly way. And then we walked to the train together and he figured it out. He came out with like, hey, did you come and teach a master class at IU with a rock band? And indeed, four, no, five years ago in 2009, when I was on tour with Capillary Action, we for some reason did a master class at Indiana University, perhaps for the jazz department. And uh, made an impression, I guess, because five years later, Jake remembered seeing me there with a trombone, even though he couldn't remember the name of the band or anything, but was able to recognize me after we spent a few hours together. It's kind of funny. Well, I feel like I've been talking your ear off. There are a few more things to do to play in the final week of the month. Tin Pan was out in the park three days in a row. I played trombone, tuba, and trombone on those afternoons. The first two were sort of chilly, like a Wednesday and Thursday, and the money was okay. And then we got a really warm Friday, and the money poured in, and we sold out of the CDs that we brought that day. That was a nice one. During the week, I was preparing to do a concert with Tilt Brass, which is a new music brass ensemble under the direction of Chris McIntyre, who is an excellent trombone player and also a composer. He organized a concert for just the trombone players from Tilt, and that involved expanding the group a little bit to include me to get it, you know, to balloon it up to seven people so we could handle a new piece of Chris's and also a Phil Niblock piece called The Third Trombone, which was written... I don't know if it was written. I, I should learn a little bit more about the process, but it's a tape piece like many of Phil Niblock's pieces. If you're familiar with his music, it's often really, really loud, very droney and intonation-based it's it's similar it's sort of it's definitely seems like a forerunner to the kind of stuff i do with david first in the western anisphere but it's a little bit different and the construction of this 
piece, the recording of it, was Phil getting trombone players or a trombone player to play the notes G and E in a few different octaves. And he would just, he had an oscilloscope, which is a measures uh, intonation. And when the note was at the precise hertz that he wanted, he would have the trombonist sustain for as long as he could with it perfectly in tune. And then Phil would cut that piece of tape, copy it, stretch it out. So there's the, the piece is this 20 minute sort of drone thing where different G's and E's are coming out and they're stacked on top of each other and they're always precisely in or out of tune for the duration and blah 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 but it is mapped out on a score even though it was constructed as a tape piece so to play it live with seven trombonists we actually all used our own computers as oscilloscopes and tried to play exactly in tune as shown on our screens with a certain frequency for a certain number of minutes. So, for example, I would play uh, an E in the staff for 40 seconds, and as long as, you know, the oscilloscope on my screen would be basically a perfect circle when I was playing the E in tune. And if I was out of tune, it would wobble in one way or the other. So I had this visual reference. And then after those 40 seconds were up, maybe I had two minutes and 10 seconds of a high G or whatever. And it progressed on like this. And we spread ourselves out around a nice wooden room in Brooklyn and played to the audience in the round. The audience, which did outnumber the seven trombonists, but not by much. What was funny about being engaged to play a Phil Niblock piece on that night is there's a violinist, Tom Chu, who plays in the Flux Quartet. And the Flux Quartet was in residence at the Stone this week, and I volunteer to work the door at the Stone a few nights a month. And I had been signed up to work on Saturday the 31st, but that was turned out to be the date of this tilt gig so I had to try to get out of it I wound up trading with someone else what's funny about that is Tom and I were drunk at the roulette Christmas party once and it was the first time we met and he asked me what my name was and I told him Phil Niblock and so for close to 10 years Tom has referred to me as Phil Niblock as our own little inside joke and so when he was emailing about details for the stone that night I actually had to tell him well actually I'm not going to be working that night because ironically I will be in Brooklyn playing a Phil Niblock piece funny cosmic joke there preceding the tilt brass gig was the final Mitra Sumara at Barbez thing so 6pm we did the thing, we played our two sets, it was nice, it was really full, there was, on this particular night, there was an Iranian or Iranian-American group of women celebrating a birthday, so they knew all the music, they were singing along with all the songs, having a total party, and, you know, 
we're playing pre-revolutionary music of Iran and the pre-revolutionary part definitely indicates in part that drinking alcohol is a-okay and uh, we certainly embrace that part of the uh, pre-revolutionary tagline as did these women they're happy to be pre-revolution and uh, Peter Zumo the trombone player in Itra Samara he was also doing the tilt thing so we played our two sets to great fanfare and then hopped in the car and drove over to the tilt gig which was about five minutes away and then we uh, went into a whole different zone of new music trombone world and that's how we wrapped up the month Actually, that's not true. <clears throat> there was another Skeletons gig the night before the Tilt gig. Uh, Friday night at Transpicos, a.k.a. the Old Silent Barn. Very similar to the last one we played, so I don't need to say that much about it, except that we had Kaylee back and Mike Galope back so it was the same exact lineup as the roulette show from March whereas in April we were down those two and it really helped we played loud and the bill was really really awesome the uh, the band cloud becomes your hand played my buddies from Cogglenocked and uh, the band the touring band that night was called horse lords from Baltimore, and they reminded me very much of Ladio Bolico. It's a band I totally love, and that's what we're going to listen to to go out. So we're listening to Ladio Bolico, and yeah, Transpicos is looking good. They've built a stage, and they've built up some um, seating, and you could never, when it was the Silent Barn, you could never go out back. But now you can go out back to smoke and talk and hang out when it gets hot in there. It's less hot outside. And the music really wafts through the neighborhood, which is probably really terrible for the neighbors, but was very comforting when I was arriving on my bike and could hear Cloud Becomes Your Hand rocking out from half a block away. I got really psyched to be there and had a great time at the show. There you go. That's May. See ya later.